The text that is before us this morning is in John chapter 5, and you'll see how it was that the Lord gave me the opportunity both over the last two Wednesdays, and I trust in several more instances, if he'll allow me, this particular fellow, I'll be able to talk with him from John chapter 5 and some other places that we'll go to in our study this morning. And this is, by the way, as I mentioned a moment ago, the opportunity that someone text me uh, earlier and asked the question about Jesus and his divinity. And this is a great opportunity to dive right in and to answer this question. So the person that texted me, uh, this will be my first answer to the question and answer that we'll have next Sunday, all right, from John chapter 5. And we'll just cover very, very briefly, because I want to do a little bit of a survey as well from John's gospel, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. And we'll continue to, to look our way through this entire chapter if you'll notice, by the way, in verse 19 of John 5, running all the way through to verse 47, so the latter part of this chapter is all of Jesus' teaching in this section from verses 19 to 47 with no words from John the Apostle, just words from Christ about his relationship to the Father. And John 5 begins this way. You follow along as I read John 5 Verses 1 to 18, after there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, 
making himself equal with God. The passage before us could be outlined in a very, very easy way in two major points. The first nine verses, or at least verses 1 to 9a, is the healing of the lame man. And then from verses 9b to verse 18, we have the hostility of the Jews. So we have the healing of the lame man and then the hostility of the Jews. Let's talk about the healing of the lame man. Story is very straightforward, very clear. Uh, after Jesus' third sign, second overall in Cana of Galilee, there is a third and then fourth sign that Jesus is said to give according to John's gospel. And this fourth sign is the healing of this man. Verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And the story, according to John the Apostle, there are a number, a multitude, he says, of invalids, the blind, the lame, and paralyzed. And there was particularly, according to verse 5, one man who was there who had been an invalid for an amazing 38 years. Now, we don't know if that means that he was born that way and he's 38 years old, or if he became an invalid sometime after his birth and that he's a, an older man by this time. All we know from the text is that this man has been in this invalid condition for 38 years. And undoubtedly, Jesus has compassion on him because in verse 6 it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now maybe this is due not only to the compassion of Jesus, but possibly also due to the omniscience of Jesus that he knew this man, of course, knew him from eternity past, and knew that he'd been in this invalid condition for 38 years. Or maybe because of Jesus being one who pilgrimed uh, to Jerusalem uh, every year of his life from his parents, from his family, making that trek every year, possibly he saw this person and knew him to be one who had been an invalid in this area for a long, long time. Whatever the reason and for whatever, we might say those things, compassion or knowledge, as true as they might have been, were actually not the main reason. The main reason that Jesus wants to heal this man is not only to relieve his paralysis, not only to be compassionate upon him, and not only because he'd been seeing him for a long, long time there, but because Jesus is now instituting the opportunity, just as he did in the temple by creating the whip and clearing out the money changers, he is instituting the opportunity for healing on the Sabbath because he wants to come into direct conflict with the religious leaders. That's the reason he does this. He heals the man on the Sabbath so that this confrontation 
can begin to take place. That's very clear with what we've read. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now, there is some level of tradition. I don't know how true it is. I actually think it's probably not true that there was a theory that angels came down and stirred the waters themselves so that when the waters were stirred up and these invalids saw it, they actually went down in the water and were healed. We don't know that that's the case, but certainly it appears to be so. We don't know if it's angels who are doing this. It might be that. I tend to doubt that. This is not in Holy Scripture. You might ha actually have uh, a, a verse or two, probably around verse 4. that might have some brackets around it that actually says something along those lines. Uh, that particular bracketed section is not a part of the most faithful manuscripts. And so that's why I tend to doubt that this is what is going on here. But nevertheless, this man, agitated as he is, disconsolate as he is, he says, no one can put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, undoubtedly that's the idea I'm trying to drag myself Someone before me who is more able-bodied than I, he comes in and he goes down in the pool before me. In other words, I can never get in. And no one's there to help me. And Jesus said to him, verse 8, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And of course, because who Jesus is, verse 9 follows, And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now, if that's all that we knew about the story, those first eight verses going into verse 9, we would rejoice. We would say this is the fourth miracle that Jesus has yet done, at least that which has been captured by John the Apostle. We would rejoice in it. We would say hallelujah because Jesus is a miracle worker. He's the Savior of the world. He does this and instantaneously people are healed. We would have no problem with that because we have the eyes of faith. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he's capable of doing this. And John the Apostle records the very fact of his doing it. But the turn, the hinge point of this story is right there in the middle of verse 9. And John supplies it to us. What does he say? He says this, Now that day was the what? the Sabbath. Here's the problem. The problem is the Jews had created among the true law of God a bunch of additional laws that were not a part of the law of God. For instance, they would say, well, if we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath and we're supposed to rest, what constitutes rest and what constitutes work? And they created a myriad of, let's call them a-biblical or non-biblical laws, which actually defined for them what was rest for the Sabbath and what was work, so as to avoid that work on the Sabbath. And of all of these myriad ideas that came to their minds, which then they cataloged, which becomes then for all intents and purposes, the law of God, quote-unquote. 
And one of those, by the way, was that if you were on the Sabbath and you had a pallet for which you would lie down, you could not pick up that pallet and put it under your arm and walk home. Because if you took that pallet and you put it under your arm and you walked home, that would be considered work. And you could do no work on the Sabbath. So when Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, your pallet, and walk, it incensed the Jews because this constituted work. That's why John the Apostle says, now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, so the Jews, this is why they're upset. This is why they're agitated. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now that's not what God's word says. It doesn't say that in so many words. That's not true. If there is an invalid and he is healed by a miracle worker, as stunning and as surprising as that would be even in this day, even with this supposed rabbi in their midst who has been doing other miracles, if he in fact commands this man to get up, to take his pallet under his arm and go home, he has been healed, the Jews are more concerned about not the healing but about the violation of the Sabbath work that they have conjured up in their own minds. That's what's at issue here. And this is precisely why John records this miracle of Jesus. And notice the old man's response, verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they want to further question him. Verse 12, they ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? In other words, we have ought against him. We have a claim of Sabbath breaking. And of course, verse 13 says, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. But verse 14 says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, I have healed you of your physical malady. And now I want to deal with your soul, the issue of sin in your life. And even though we don't have the fuller conversation, we might know that Jesus continues to talk to those around him about the issue of sin, just like Jesus confronted the woman at the well in chapter four about her sin her serial fornication. And he's talking to this man and he's challenging him at the root of the sinfulness of his life, even though an invalid he may be. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And right on the heels of that revelation, verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You know, of course, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are going to be other occasions in which Jesus heals or does something on the Sabbath that incenses the Jews to no end because of their man-made laws and because of what their perception is that Jesus has violated the Sabbath and he's done nothing of the kind. The Sabbath 
all the way back when it was instituted was not meant ever by God to be something in which persons would stumble over the smallest detail. Well, is this, is this work? Is this work for me? Am I supposed to do this? Well, what constitutes work? Is this work or is that work? Is it not work? Can I do this on the Sabbath? Am I not able to do this on the Sabbath? The Sabbath was provided for the opportunity in men to cease from working in general in practicality so that they could focus upon their relationship with God and rest. How that is to be taken out in so many cases is generally, and especially us in the New Covenant age, it's up to our understanding and our application of such a principle. And even for Jesus. I mean, can you imagine this? The Jews, these very religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to be helping take care of the poor, have undoubtedly themselves been walking by this Bethesda pool for all of their lives also. And for every day that they walked by and saw this particular man, let alone all the others who were blind and lame and others who were paralyzed, and would they not have wanted to say, I, Lord, want to have compassion, great compassion upon these who are suffering so mightily. I want to pray for them. God, would you heal them? Would you take them into your bosom? And would you care for them in ways that I, as a faithful Jew, but not a miracle worker, can't do? 38 years? Can you imagine that? Some of these faithful Jews, being religious leaders, would have been far older than, than this man and would have seen them, some of them undoubtedly, for all 38 years. And their first reaction at his healing? Oh, it's something like this. Praise God! Hallelujah! He's walking. He has his pallet under his arm and he's going home. This, this is God working in this man's life. Praise him. Praise Yahweh God. That's not their response, is it? They're choked on the idea that Jesus has done this on the Sabbath. This is uh, straining at gnats while at the same time attempting to swallow camels. They should have loved the Lord all the more. They should have rejoiced in the healing of this man. They should have said, who, who did this for you? And of course, he would have said, I, I don't know. He, he did it, and then he moved in and through the crowd. I, I, I don't know where he came from. I don't know where he is. I don't know where he's going. All I know, like the man born blind in chapter 9, is what? I'm healed. I'm healed. God has done a great thing. He has visited me, and I didn't even have to go down into the pool. And once he finds out who it was, Jesus, who had healed him, he tells them plainly, it was Jesus who healed me. Praise God. Rejoice with me. Rejoice that God has been gracious to me. Isn't that your response, my dear brothers? And sadly, it isn't. And then in verse 17, a very, very shocking thing that Jesus says that gives 
all the more reason for them to become not more rejoicing, not more joyous, but more incensed. He was doing these things on the Sabbath, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says in verse 17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Stop there. This is an amazing statement from our Lord. And why do you suppose he uses the verb working? Because it has to do with what? The Sabbath. My Father is working, not has worked, is working presently, always has and always will. My Father is working until now, even to this very point that I'm communicating to you, and I, Jesus, am what? Working. Parallel statements. And when these are parallel statements, my Father is working and I am working, how does, what does Jesus do in this statement? He's putting himself on the same plane. And that, my friends, is exactly why the Jews, in verse 18, according to John, react so violently. Verse 18, this, this statement of Jesus this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to what? To kill him. To kill him. Kill him? Kill him? How about praise him? How about bow down before him? How about give him allegiance, glory? The Jews were looking for their Messiah. The Messiah actually is on the scene now, and he's doing miracles, the kind of miracles, even as we progress through the Gospel of John, all the way to chapter 9, and the man born blind, which it says, even from that man's own lips, that there has not been anyone who was ever cured of his blindness in the history of the world until now. And then Lazarus at the tomb, raised from the dead in chapter 11, this is no mere man. The Messiah has come on the scene, and the Jews should have recognized it, but their hearts were hard, their their minds were dead set against him. And it is no wonder that John says, and because he healed this man on the Sabbath, and because he's saying that he is working like his heavenly father is working, he in essence is saying, I have no need to rest on the Sabbath. I continue to work. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Notice this statement. This is the word of God, making himself equal with God. You have to understand the Hebrew mindset. Father and son shared the same essence, the same qualities. And so when there was a father who was talking about a son, and when there was a son who was referencing his father, and when they were saying, we do the same things, I do what he tells me to do, he rejoices in what I'm doing, all of those parallels, and you're going to see this as we move through the Gospel of John, this is tantamount to saying, 
I am equal with God. And if you don't believe it, just look at the Jews' reaction. This is their reaction. He was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I am on the same plane as God the Father. I am equal to Yahweh. Don't lose sight of that. They concluded the right thing from what he said. They just hated it. They just hated the truth of it. They didn't want it. They didn't want to believe it. They kicked against it. They did not want Jesus to be equal with the Father in any sense. Stop calling him your Father. And when we get over to John 8, we're going to look at that in a moment. The idea is even more enlightening because they say, we have Abraham as our father. And he gives them a response. In fact, why don't we just go through a couple of these and we'll leave verses 19 and following for next time. I want you to go in your Bibles, for instance, to chapter 6 of John's Gospel and look at verse 48. This, of course, is very familiar to all of you. Jesus said, I am the what? The bread of life. Coming right out, coming right on the heels of providing a meal for thousands, a miracle of epic proportions. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You look at your Old Testament. God is said to be the light in the Old Testament. Jesus is now claiming, I am the light. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Look at chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It's an amazing statement. Look at verse 11 of that same chapter. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. Look at chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's an astounding claim. And the Jews, of course, are choking on all of these claims. You're the, you're the door. You're the good shepherd. You're, you're the truth. You're, you're the resurrection. You're the life. Remember John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. You're making astounding claims, Jesus. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. I've just given you the, 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 the seven I am statements, and there are other places where uh, without the predicate, I am the something, he says, I am he. I am. Well, look at John chapter 8, verse 48. This is amazing. You want to see Jesus' equality with God? John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's blasphemous, isn't it? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. 
which implied, of course, means that if you dishonor me, you're dishonoring the Father. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Can any human being claim that if you seek me, if you believe in me, if you keep my word, you'll never see death? This is no more than an astounding claim of divinity. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And they're invoking Abraham. They did it all the way back in verse 39 of this chapter. And they're invoking him again. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Verse 53, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And he continues to refer to God as his own Father, making himself equal with God. Verse 55, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, listen to this astounding claim, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. What? Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I pre-existed before Abraham was ever born. It's an astounding claim of pre-existence. And the Jews, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And you know what Jehovah's Witnesses do with a verse like this? I read some of the material. And I read other material. In fact, I read about two books worth of material, both before uh, and against, or both for and against the idea of a passage like this, saying that Jesus was divine. And they say, well, what he's really saying is, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, um, before Abraham was born, uh, I was born. And of course, that does violence to the idea of even the incarnation and affirming the incarnation, because the incarnation was when? After Abraham's birth. So when he says, I was, I am before Abraham, it's, it's a claim of divinity. It's a claim of preexistence. It's not, well, before Abraham was born, I was born, because Abraham, it says in this text, in this chapter, and in other places, was born. But when it says about Jesus that he was the word, John 1, 1, and the word was with God and the word was God. That's preexistence. And that doesn't do violence to this at all. Before Abraham was, I am. Look at John chapter 10. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, 
bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Do you see the idea? The father has them in his hands. I have them in my hands and the two of us as persons co-equal have them in our hands so that they are never snatched by anyone. And then he puts the exclamation point on it, verse 30, I and the Father are one. You want to see Jesus claim to deity? There it is. You know what the JWs say? Well, that just means I and the Father are one in purpose. The only problem is in the context of this chapter, that's not what it means. In the context of this chapter, it is unmistakable that Jesus is claiming a oneness beyond just a purpose of ministry, a, a purpose of unity. He is saying, I and the Father are one in essence. Look at John chapter, 15, uh, chapter 17, verse 5. Why doesn't John's gospel just come out and plainly say, Jesus is God? It has. And here's another, John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, this is his high priestly prayer, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world, what? Existed. The glory that you and I shared before the world even came to be. You know what they say? They say, well, and others like them, JWs. Well, that just means that God was before. He created the Son before the creation of the world, and then the Son was involved with the Father in the creation of the world. So it's the Father, number one, creating the Son, number two, creating the world, number three. The problem is all of these texts and so many more, and not just those, but other passages throughout the New Testament simply don't square with that teaching, including, by the way, John chapter 20, verse 28. You remember doubting Thomas after Jesus' resurrection? Verse 26 says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your own hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my what? God. And you know that same phrase is listed for us in the Old Testament and it's a reference to Yahweh, about Yahweh, my Lord and my God. And this would have been a perfect time, by the way, for Jesus to say something like this. Nope, nope, nope. Only the Father is to receive worship. Only the Father is to receive praise. I cannot receive that. I'm a mere man. Please don't accord me with divinity. I am not God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Why? Because if they believe, even if they haven't seen, they receive eternal life and that at my hands. He's the giver of eternal life. No, the person, the person of Jesus, the Christ, is to be worshipped 
and adored as God in human flesh. And I ask you this morning, do you worship this Jesus? He is God. And even those who deny it because they have scales on their eyes, because they can't hear with their ears, and they reject with their mouths that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, giving evidence that He's of the essence of the Father, God the Father, God the Son, we, we worship Him. And we don't make any qualms about doing that. We worship Jesus Christ. He is to be worshiped. He is to be magnified. He is to be adored. In fact, as we close, turn to Revelation chapter 1. This same man, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, will be our fitting conclusion. Revelation chapter 1. Listen to these words and listen to the praise accorded Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ Revelation 1.1, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the preeminent one from the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. 
And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father in heaven, as we read here in Revelation chapter 1, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is equal to you, Father, as is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person, a person to be worshipped. And when we worship Him, He bids us to give praise to the Son. And when we give praise to the Son, He bids us to give praise to the Father. And we are in inter-Trinitarian worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that there's anyone here who does not believe in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Mighty One. I pray that they would give up the doubt and that they would see Jesus for who He really is, Son of God. God the Son. We praise you, God the Son. Thank you for your work on the cross to reconcile sinners like us to your Father. And thank you, Father, for giving us the Son and for giving us the Spirit to be enlightened to be illumined about who the Son is. We would never believe, we would never ascribe glory to the Son if it weren't for the Holy Spirit illumining our minds so that we would worship the Son in glorious array and through Him to you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for the Godhead. Thank you for the three persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Thank you that while they are persons, they make up the one God. And we worship this God in praise and adoration, even as we sing right now. Amen.